0: All right, good stuff in worship this morning. Thank you, Brad, and praise team and choir. Take your Bible, if you would, this morning, church family. And let's be finding, once again, Acts chapter 11. We'll have this Sunday, next Sunday, and we will have finished this leg of our journey through the wonderful book of Acts, this multiply series in which we've been examining the growth and the development and the spread of the early church out of Jerusalem into the surrounding region, and then later on in 2018, we'll look at our final series in Acts, which we'll be calling Sent, which will cover the missionary journeys of Paul to all these wonderful and exotic places that Jesus referred to as the uttermost part of the world. This morning, we're finishing up Acts chapter 11. It's often been said, and I, I think that it's true, that allegiance is matter. Everybody in here has differing kinds of allegiances. When I mentioned just a moment ago on the stage, all I had to do was say it the University of Florida. And I get all kinds of emotions. Some of you sat on your hands and didn't do anything. Some of you wanted to stand up and cheer. Others of you wanted to boo in the house of the Lord. And that that would have been true for just about any allegiance from a university standpoint uh, that I would make. So we have university allegiances. It means something when you say, I am an American or I am a Texan. My daughter, Whitney, was born in Texas. She lived there all of eight months. And yet when someone asks her today, Where is she? I'm from Texas. True Texan, because they're very proud about being a Texan. <clears throat> it means something when you say, I am a Republican or I am a Democrat. The time that this was written, the greatest boast a person could make about themselves was, I am a Roman. Kivis Romanus sum, I am a Roman citizen. That was a big deal. And it communicated volumes about what was really important to you. Did you know the same is true whenever someone says, I am a Christian? That means something. And fortunately, it's a lot like saying today, I graduated from Florida. Because when you say that, depending on the listener, you'll get some who'll sit on their hands and won't respond at all. You'll have others who want to stand up and cheer. And you'll have some who want to boo right in your face. In the Bible, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ Are identified in a host of different ways. Sometimes they're referred to as disciples. At other times they're referred to as believers. Sometimes they're referred to as saints. Other places refer to them as followers, all kinds of different ways, witnesses, followers of Jesus. Believers in Jesus are identified all kinds of ways in the Bible. But what stands out here in Acts chapter 11, as you're going to see, is a statement that's made practically at the end of the chapter, and it's here we want to actually begin today. Acts eleven twenty six. 26, here's what it says. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, the identifying marker Christian is a term, again, that's either loved or hated, depending on, of course, your perspective. The word Christian is a word that means Christ one, And obviously, it came to refer to those who connected themselves to Christ in some way, someone who followed Christ or someone who held to the principles of the Lord Jesus Christ or attempted to follow the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you read the Bible, you don't find that word Christian much in your New Testament. It's only in there three times. This is the first place that it's mentioned. It's also mentioned once in the book of 1 Peter and then later on in Acts chapter 26. So it's certainly not the most often used way that uh, Christians are identified in the Bible or Jesus' followers are identified in the Bible, but it's still important for several reasons. And it is biblical. So, there's certainly no reason to run from it. I have no problem. In fact, I'm quite proud to be able to stand in this or any other group throughout Pensacola or anywhere else in the world and say very proudly, I am a Christian. I follow the Lord Jesus Christ and attempt to live my life embracing and living out his teachings. For our purposes today, there are two things I want you to notice about this designation Christian in terms of what it means to be a Christian, the first thing that we notice from this passage of Scripture is that it wasn't a self-designation. In other words, it wasn't something that Christians used to refer to themselves. It was what others called them. So it's kind of passive. The Bible says here the disciples were called Christians, which meant they weren't calling themselves that. Others were referring to them and that's presumably the pagan Gentiles who are around them there in Antioch. Some say that that term began kind of as a derisive term or a pejorative. There go those Christians, and sometimes when people use the word Christian, they have that kind of scowl on their face as well. And there may be some truth to that. Some may have used it kind of as an epithet in some way, but I think mostly it was just used as an identifying marker. That's one, Oh, there goes one of those guys who attaches himself to Christ. Or there's a person who adheres to the teachings of Christ. And so it was just an identifying uh, marker. Disciples is who they were. Christians is how they were identified by others. Does that make sense? So they would refer to themselves as disciples of Christ, but others observing them would refer to them as Christians or ones belonging to Christ. That's the first thing you need to notice. Second is that it was in Antioch that the term Christian was first applied to those who followed the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, those who made up the church. And as we're going to see, Antioch of Syria, north of Jerusalem a few hundred miles, uh, in modern south-central Turkey today, would become soon one of the most important cities on the planet particularly from the standpoint of the spread of Christianity. It would become kind of the sending point from which Christianity would go to fulfill the final part of the Great Commission to take the gospel to the uttermost part of the world. So it's going to become a very important Christian outreach center, and it's the focus of what takes place here at the end of Acts chapter 11. As Luke was writing the book of Acts, Antioch was becoming this booming commercial center this booming political center where the armies of Rome and the armies of Greece had marched. It was known in those days as the Queen of the East, and it was just blowing up in population, having a population at the time of this writing of somewhere between five and 600,000 people that made it the third most populous city in the then known world. Only Rome and Alexandria in Egypt were larger at that time, than Antioch of Syria. And because of its political and economic importance, it had become what we would call a cosmopolitan city. It was like New York would be today, or Chicago, or London, or any of the great metropolises of today where you go to them today, and there are people of every ethnic nationality there. Has anybody ever been to New York recently? I mean, you want to go to an international city, just go to New York or to Miami or to London, and you'll find people from all over the globe. Well, that was Antioch in the first century. There were Greeks there, and there were Romans there. There were native Syrians there. There were Egyptians there, and there were Indians there, and there were Asians there, and there were Phoenicians and Arabs there. There was even a population of about 25,000 Jews. And so there were all kinds of People there, it would become what we would known, uh, know today as a melting pot where people of all backgrounds learn to live and function and work side by side together. And it was here in Antioch that two very important things happened. One, this movement begins that would change the world with the gospel because remember it would be from Antioch that Saul, Paul and Barnabas would first be sent out as missionaries. And so Antioch is going to become this incredibly important church that changes the entire world with the great commission of the gospel, and this is where it would all begin. And then the second thing uh, that Antioch is important uh, for is because here, again, is where believers were first labeled Christians by those who observe them. The question I want to get out today is why did they do that? Why did those pagan Gentiles who knew nothing about the gospel, look at this fledgling group of young believers and identify them directly with Jesus Christ, calling them a name that had everything to do with Christ. What was it about their life, their lifestyle, their behavior, their practices that earned them the moniker Christian? Well, several things likely, but I want us to look at this passage at the end of Acts 11 because I think there are three very important identifying marks that help us to understand what it means to be a genuine Christian and what it means to be a part of a genuine church. First of all, I want you to notice that a Christian is someone who is intentionally evangelistic. That was the first thing that got them the label Of Christian. We're in Acts 11 and verse 19. Notice it with me. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So that's the first thing that we notice about these believers in Antioch is they were committed to reaching unbelievers with the gospel. The, the church at Antioch itself was birthed out of this commitment to evangelism. You'll remember the believers had been scattered out of Jerusalem because of the persecution that arisen or had arisen because of the death of Stephen. Stephen was stoned for his bold witness to Christ, and that's when the Jewish religious establishment had decided they'd had enough. And so they began to drive out many who were practicers of uh, the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ and who were very open about their faith, and they had to scatter, and they went into parts of Judea and Samaria. And as they went, of course, they took the gospel with them. They opened up their mouth, and they gave testimony to who Jesus was and what the Lord had done for them. And now, once again, we're reminded of that Christian scattering, only this time it had extended way further to the north, to Phoenicia, which is modern-day Lebanon, and to the island of Cyprus, just off the Mediterranean coast there. And even further north into the city of Antioch, this booming metropolis, teeming with people of every ethnic nationality. And once they got there, these displaced believers start talking about Jesus. The first thing that they do, they begin with the Jewish communities of those regions, which was completely natural since most of them were Jewish believers themselves. So they went to their kindred, they went to the synagogues and they opened up their mouth to Jewish brothers and sisters, telling them about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, preaching to them that Jesus was the long-expected anointed one, the Messiah of Israel. But then there were others that some have labeled these gospel mavericks who really got full of the Holy Spirit. These were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, and they get to Antioch, and they have an even broader strategy. Hey, think about this. Why not just not only take the gospel to the Jews but why not just start sharing it with everybody that we come across because there aren't very many Jews this city has what five six hundred thousand people how many of them are Jews 25,000 that's not very much in terms of the percentage of the population so everybody around us seems to be Greek speaking Gentiles and you know what they're just as lost as everybody else they're just as lost as the Jews in the synagogue are lost so they these mavericks got this idea why not take the gospel in mass to these Greek speaking gentiles that's what the ESV translation says they took it to Hellenist which is kind of a literal translation there the idea is to the Greeks what we would call gentiles and so here what you have is very remarkable in Antioch it's critically important For the very first time, we see this strategic thrust to take the gospel to people who literally knew nothing about it. They didn't have the Old Testament. There was no New Testament at the time. They'd never probably heard of Jesus of Nazareth, contrary to many down in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. They knew nothing about the gospel. And so for the very first time, we've got the gospel going in mass from a group of fired-up, spirit-filled lay leaders, not preachers, not seminary trained, just Christians who were under persecution and had been driven from their homeland. And the way that they got tagged as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, first and foremost, was that they just simply did not stop talking about the man. They witnessed to the reality of Jesus Christ Christ. As Lord. And that's something that's very important because those guys are you guys, not celebrity preachers from Jerusalem. These guys are not rock stars. Did y'all hear me say amen? amen? They're just everyday people, full of the Spirit of God, can't help but testify in terms of what they've seen and heard. The Bible says they preached the Lord Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, and how Christ had changed their lives. They didn't have any, listen, they didn't have anything to help them. They weren't trained and schooled. They didn't have any gospel tracks to pull out of their coat pocket to hand to people. They didn't have any supplements. They didn't have any lights. Didn't have any cameras. Didn't have any visuals. They didn't have any chalk talk artists. They didn't have any dancing bears for crying out loud to attract a crowd. Listen, I'm not against any of that stuff. Well, I might have a problem with dancing bears in church, but the rest of it, not opposed to using creative methods to get people uh, into an audience where we can preach the gospel to them, not against visuals, not against even celebrities for that matter. What I am saying this morning, and it's important that you hear me say this, is that the gospel doesn't need any help. The gospel alone is sufficient to save a human life. And that's all they had was the good news of the gospel. Somebody said to me one time years ago, Jim, if it takes helicopters and sports stars and dancing bears to attract people, it'll take helicopters and sports stars and dancing bears to keep people. And once those things are gone, the people will be gone too. And that's why you need to make sure that you're majoring on the main thing in your life and that we're majoring on the main thing in our church. We did a survey a few years ago after Easter, at Easter, to find out how our Easter guests got to Hillcrest on Sunday morning. Man, we'd done everything. We took out ads in newspapers. We took out an ad on television. We advertised on social media. We invested in signage all over the place. And so we thought, well, let's just ask people, which of these caused you to take note and take attention and come to experience worship with us on an Easter Sunday morning. 85% of the people that were here on Easter Sunday that Easter 85% didn't come for any of that stuff. They came because somebody that they knew opened up their mouth and invited them to come to church with them. Now that's not to say we're against advertising or any of that stuff. We do it strategically. But the bottom line is, we're the witnesses, not the sign. And that's how this church at Antioch started to blow up, and that's how it ended up affecting literally the whole world. We are here today because of what happened at Antioch, brothers and sisters. Whether it was to Jews first or then to the Gentiles, both involved believers opening up their mouth and speaking a word about Jesus, which is what evangelism is all about. Remember our definition of evangelism. Evangelism is nothing more than just sharing with spiritually lost people what the Bible says about Jesus. That's all in the world it is. Sharing with lost people what the Bible says about Jesus, and I might add sharing with lost people what that Jesus has done for you. And the results were phenomenal. Great numbers of people responded with faith, and turned to the Lord. So all that to say, when these people from outside the church looked at those who had become the church at Antioch and said, those are Christians, we're going to label them Christian for the first time. This was the first reason why, because they saw that these were people whose lives had been affected by Jesus and who constantly opened up their mouth and communicated a message to others about who he was and what he alone could do for them. Does that make sense this morning? So intentional evangelism, a concern for the lost and a willingness to speak to others a word about Jesus. That's the first mark of a genuine Christian. Second, a Christian is someone also that's committed to discipleship, not only to evangelism, but to discipleship. In other words, we don't just open up our mouth, speak to them, see them come to faith in Christ, and then pat them on the back and say, okay, mission accomplished. We'll see you in heaven. No, there's a continuing work that has to be done. And here's what is important because there's an important turn of events that happens here when the Jerusalem church found out what was going on in Antioch. Have y'all noticed in our study of Acts that the Jerusalem church, the mother church, is always finding out the new stuff that's going on? And they're no different than us. We hear something new is going on and we get word to whoever's in charge. And I've had that happen to me a thousand times through the years. Here's the way the statement begins. Are you aware of what's going on? and then fill in the blank. Well, that's always happening. Philip takes the gospel of uh, Christ to the Samaritans, and somebody went to the Jerusalem church and said, are you aware of what's going on in Samaria? They sent Peter and John up there. Peter goes to the house of Cornelius and for the first time preaches the gospel to a Gentile under his roof, and somebody finds out about it and goes to Jerusalem and says, are you aware of what's going on? at the house of Cornelius, and there was a great summons, and Peter went to Jerusalem and began to explain what had happened there earlier in Acts 11. Same thing happens here. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears (coughs) of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord, with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now, this is not our first exposure to Barnabas. We've been introduced to him before. He's one of the great men of the New Testament, one of the great men of the entire Bible, for that matter. His real name wasn't Barnabas. It was Joseph. Barnabas was a nickname, which I'm thankful nobody has nicknamed me that because it's a mouthful. Usually, nicknames are shorter, but not necessarily back then because names meant something. And Barnabas means son of encouragement. And it was the apostles in Jerusalem, the bigwigs, that gave him that nickname because this was a guy that was always up, always positive. Y'all know people that are like that? You want to just lay something heavy, and then guess what they do? They turn a negative into a positive, and they do. Don't they just make you sick when they do that? No, I'd love to be around people like that. I need people like that in my life. He's always able to take a negative and spend something positive out of it. And the apostles saw that in Barnabas, and they gave him the nickname. Barnaby, we might call him. Son of encouragement, because he was just always up, always positive, and he's always doing a positive thing. We see him the first time in Acts. He's selling property to give the money away to the church because there were needy people in the church. So he's selling off something that he owns in order to make other people's lives better. And then when Saul of Tarsus got saved and nobody in Jerusalem wanted to have anything to do with him, who was it that stood beside Paul and took him to Jerusalem and gave him a formal introduction to people that needed to know him? It was Barnabas. Nobody else wanted to get near him, much less stand right by his side. And yet that's what Barnabas does. Here... The apostles, being fully aware of who he was and what he brought to the table, chose Barnabas to be the emissary to Antioch. We hear that Gentiles in mass. I mean, it's one thing for Peter to just preach the gospel to a Gentile family. But now we've got them coming to Jesus faster than we can keep up with. And we need you to go up there and find out what in the world is going on. Why did they choose Barnabas? Two reasons. One was a spiritual reason. He was like Philip, or like Stephen, the Bible says, he was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. That's exactly the same language that's used in Acts chapter 8 to describe Stephen. So spiritually, he's full of Jesus. He's full of the Spirit of God, and so they trusted him from a spiritual standpoint. The second reason they sent him was a cultural reason because he was a Hellenist himself. He was Jewish, but he was, like Stephen again, and like Philip, he was a Greek-speaking Jew, a Hellenistic Jew from the island of Cyprus. And so he would fit very well in this cosmopolitan environment of Antioch. He knew how to navigate different races of people, unlike a Hebrew, for example, a Hebrew Jew who was typically bound to Jerusalem and did not quite have the deafness to move in and out of Phoenicians and Arabs and Egyptians and Cretans and all of these different... Barnabas would know how to navigate the lay of the land. And so they wanted him to go because he was spiritually strong and he possessed a cultural disposition that would enable him to get a read on the situation and determine whether or not this was a move of God that was in fact legit. Does that make sense? And when he gets there, there's just no question in his mind. God's hand is all over this thing. God's grace is all over this movement in Antioch. The challenge was things were so good there that it was beginning to snowball out of control. They didn't have any leadership up there. It was just all lay people telling others about Jesus. And people were responding in mass to Jesus. So they were winning people to Jesus, but they had no way to what? Disciple people. In Jesus, And here's Barnabas running around, and he's a key leader from down in Jerusalem. But his spiritual gift is not really the gift of teaching, it's the gift of encouragement. And the first thing he knew was, this thing is bigger than I am. I'm going to have to stay here for a while, but not even I am able to give what needs to be given here. I need somebody that has the gift of teaching because that's the most important thing in the ministry of discipleship. Is teaching others what they need to believe about Jesus and how to live for Jesus. And so, because a great many people were added to the Lord, Barnabas realizes he's got to do something and he's got to do something quick. And it didn't take long for him to determine who the right man was to bring to Antioch. Verse 25. So, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for who? Say it out loud. And that's gonna be an important, that's gonna be the most important decision Barnabas ever makes in his life, outside of following Jesus himself. The most important decision he ever makes is the decision, and the Spirit gave gave him the name. There's no doubt about that. Go to Tarsus and get Saul. And immediately, when the Spirit planted that thought in his mind and his heart, he thought, well, of course. He went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they, Barnabas and Saul, later to be known as Paul, met with the church and taught a great many people. And it would be from Antioch that this missionary team known as Paul and Barnabas would eventually be sent out on what became known as the first missionary journey. It all began... When Barnabas agreed to go to Antioch, saw what was going on in Antioch, couldn't believe what he was seeing, realized it was bigger than he was, and in humility said, I need somebody better at this than me, and goes to Tarsus about 100 miles away, which would have taken him several days to get there on foot, searches for Saul, finds him, and convinces him to come back. These two guys, I'm just telling you all, they were absolutely nothing alike talk about opposites. this was the odd couple Felix and Oscar right here but man you put the two of them together and it was spiritual dynamite and for a whole year what did they do they discipled they discipled the fledgling church until it became so strong in a year it became the launching pad from which the gospel would be sent to the whole nations and so mark this down a Christian is not just somebody who is saved A Christian is somebody that's saved and growing in their faith. Someone who's saved and developing, maturing in their salvation. Mark this down. A Christian does not just identify with Christ. A Christian becomes like Christ. There are lots of people running around identifying with their lips that they are Christian, but their life has no fruit whatsoever. And I'm not sure you can say you're a Christian if your life's not bearing fruit for the glory of God. Now, a Christian doesn't just identify with Christ. A Christian becomes like Christ, where we learn to walk in the Spirit and we learn to reflect the character of Christ and we learn to make consistently wise decisions, obedient decisions in the will of God, and we don't care what it costs us to obey Christ, regardless the cost. That's discipleship. You can't glorify God apart from discipleship. You can't change a culture apart from discipleship. And you really can't be a Christian apart from being a disciple who's becoming like him. So this was the second reason why they were tagged with the label. They called them Christians because they were intentionally evangelistic because they were committed to becoming like him, committed to discipleship. And then third, a Christian is generously involved in the work of ministry. That was a third reason. They saw how they responded to issues and how they responded (coughs) to needs. Beginning here in verse 27, the emphasis shifts just a little bit. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up, stood up in a general assembly, we presume, and foretold by the Spirit. That means what he said was coming straight from God. Foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great what? Famine over all the world. Luke adds parenthetically, this took place in the days of Claudius, Roman Emperor Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone, according to his ability, to send what? Relief, which involves sending what? Money, that's right, to the brothers living in Judea, people that they had never met, people that were not related to them, people about whom they knew absolutely nothing. They determined on the prophecy alone not because there was a famine, but because a man of God said there would be a famine. That was all they needed to engage. They determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, verse 30, and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And what's just important is that you see how these first believers, these young believers, first called Christians here in Antioch, responded to their first real test, their first real ministry challenge. We don't know much about this prophet named Agabus. The people in Jerusalem appeared to know him. He'll appear one more time at the end of Acts when he will prophesy that Paul's going to jail because of his preaching. That would happen as well. But the first time we see him, he's a predictive prophet in the Old Testament strain of Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah. He opens up his mouth, and he says, Thus saith the Lord, here's something that is going to happen. And he predicts a great famine. It wouldn't happen until several years later, when uh, in A.D. 45, during the reign of Claudius, just as Luke said, there was a great flood. The Nile River extended its banks. And back in those days, Egypt was the breadbasket of that whole region, the land, the river bottom land along the Nile River was the most fertile land on the planet at the time. And yet it all flooded out, wiping out the grain crop, sending grain prices through the roof. Supply and demand was just as true in the first century as today. And grain prices, people couldn't afford to buy bread. Couldn't afford to buy grain. And so the famine resulted, particularly the closer you were to Egypt, and that's why it affected the people in Judea, more than it affected the people at Antioch. But all they had was a word. There was no famine at the time of the prophecy. They heard the word of God and they said, hey, here's the thing, we need to be ready now, right now. So they trusted the Lord and they were moved to action totally by faith. They live with an open hand. They give generously as the Lord gave them ability. He didn't say, everybody give $10,000. That's not what he said. Each gave according to their own prosperity, according to their own ability, but each gave sacrificially. These were people who didn't have a lot of money. And that's a sure sign that they had undivided hearts. This is how you know. Are you all still with me? Say amen. This is a big reason how you know they were being discipled. Because they weren't any different than us. The most precious thing to them was their money. That was their security, right? So the fact that as mostly poor people, they were at this stage early in their understanding of Christ, learning to open up their hand and be generous as Christ was generous with them, is a wonderful testimony about the nature of their heart, undivided heart, committed to the gospel, prioritizing the gospel in terms of... Of how they use their resources and really that's where the rubber meets the road in Christian discipleship because I have to tell you in the western world and in the western church uh, we tend to be bound tight to our money bound tight to the things that we own and very often the hardest thing for a believer to do is this to learn to live with a giving hand, to learn to live with an open hand, to learn to recognize it's not mine and I can't take it with me. And when God speaks and God tells me to share, I ought to be willing to do it because that's what Jesus did for me. In fact, it was Jesus who I remind you died owning nothing apparently but the clothes on his back who said what? Lay up not for yourselves treasures on earth but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So how do you do that? How do you lay up treasures in heaven? Well, you do what these young believers in Antioch did. You put others ahead of yourself. You realize that you, the, whole, the universe doesn't revolve around you, and you're not left here for you. You're left here to be a channel of the blessing and grace of God to others. Jesus said, put others and the needs of others ahead of yourself. Why would he tell us to do that? Because that's the way he lived his life. He gave his life, the Bible says, as a ransom for many. So when we give, we're demonstrating that we're becoming like Christ because giving was an integral part of his life. For God so loved the world, he what? He gave. So you can't really be like Christ without a generous, open-handed, giving spirit. And that's how you lay up treasures in heaven. You value others more important than yourself. You invest in the gospel. You invest in mission. You invest in ministry. You invest in things that carry eternal difference. Why? Because that's obedience. That's discipleship. And that's what Christians do. Outsiders saw that in this young fledgling church and they made a direct connection to Christ who shed his blood and who gave his life so that a world that was famine stricken spiritually because of sin could be fed spiritual bread and receive the gift of everlasting life and that's in part why these people were called Christian. They were simply doing as Jesus himself had done. Let me just remind everybody today it's real easy to self-identify as a Christian. We call them cultural Christians. What's your religion? Oh, I'm a Christian. Never go to church. Never serve in a ministry never sing a praise song, never open a Bible. It's easy to self-identify as a Christian, and many do. But the question on the table today is, am I really a Christian? Am I really one of those? Because a genuine Christian is not only a Christian in word. A genuine Christian is a Christian in word and in deed. Intentional evangelism, a commitment to discipleship where I'm not only identifying with Christ but becoming like Christ, and then generous involvement in active ministry. These are three surefire ways that you can know it's real when someone looks at you and says, there goes a Christian. This is the word of God and all God's people said, amen.